Let's pray. Oh, gracious Father, we come to you now seeking to hear from your word. As it is preached, we pray for your spirit to give us deeper understanding into this truth, into this word, that we might hear your voice and respond as your people to respond with appropriate faith and obedience. So change us, O Lord, as we hear your word preached. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, this morning we are going to begin a new sermon series through the book of Micah. Micah, as you may know, is one of the 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament. Minor, not in terms of importance, but just simply in terms of length compared to the major prophets. Micah comes right after the better known Jonah. Jonah, as you probably know, is that prophet who refused at first to go to Nineveh which is the capital city of Assyria. And in those days, the Assyrians were a powerhouse on the world scene. They were the big bully going around terrorizing and taking over other nations. Well, as we're told in the first verse of Micah, he served as a prophet during the reigns of three kings of Judah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And based on what we know of their reigns out of the book of second Kings, that tells us that the Assyrians were still the dominant world power as Micah was prophesying. Now, Jonah was sent to preach a message of judgment against Assyria, prophesying their doom and downfall, which of course was averted because his preaching actually led to their repentance and God stayed his hand. Well, Years later, the Assyrians were back to their wicked ways and they were threatening the very existence of God's people. They were such a threat that the book that follows Micah, the book of Nahum, is directly addressed to Nineveh, prophesying again its doom and destruction. So considering how so many prophecies in those days were condemning the Assyrians, you can understand why Micah's audience probably were expecting to hear a similar kind of prophecy, but he goes in a different direction. Unlike Jonah or Nahum, Micah's prophecy of judgment wasn't directed against Israel's enemies, but against Israel herself. Assyria is definitely still in view, not as the object of God's judgment, but rather as the appointed means of God judging and punishing Israel. Notice with me in verse one, how the collection of oracles in this book that span the entire length of the prophet's long career are written concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Now, those are the two capital cities of the northern and southern kingdom, respectively. You see, after King Solomon, there was a very bitter, bitter civil war in Israel. And from that point on, whenever scripture speaks of Israel, it's usually referring to the 10 tribes of the northern kingdom. And when it mentions Judah, it's talking about the southern kingdom. Micah, we're being told in verse one, is from Moresheth, and that's in the southwestern region of Judah. And so unlike Jonah, who he was sent to a foreign nation to preach judgment and doom upon them, Micah instead stayed local. 
he remained and operated in Judah, likely in Jerusalem itself, preaching to his own. So Micah is a book that challenges the presumptions of God's people. You see, when you're considered God's chosen people, it's tempting to presume upon his grace. You're all for God showing up with a heavy hand of justice, assuming that being his people means you're exempt from that. And that contributes, of course, to a false sense of entitlement and to a lack of godly fear. There's this presumption that God is always going to bless his chosen people, regardless of their behavior. That, my friends, is how unjust practices among the people of God can go unchecked and ignored for years, for ages, both in in ancient days and in modern days. How else do we account for the American church's complicity with the evils of chattel slavery or of Jim Crow era segregation? How else can we explain the sex abuse scandals that have occurred in recent years, polluting churches across denominations? How else did the term evangelical, which literally means a person of good news, how did it become a despised term by many in our contemporary moment? One could argue that all of those developments can be explained by a church culture where the status of being the children of God has failed to translate into a grateful sense of responsibility, but rather has translated into a selfish sense of entitlement. That explains why the people of God are much quicker to see sin and judgment in the world than in our own hearts and among our own community. If a prophet like Micah were to appear today, I think there are so many problems going on in the world right now that we would expect him to preach on. But like his original audience, we would probably be be in for a shock when the prophet suddenly directs his message against us. Now, if you notice with me, the imagery being used in this prophecy is that of a cosmic courtroom. In chapter one, notice how it says that God has come to be a witness against you. Now there he's talking to the earth. He's talking to everyone in it. We're all under trial, including God's people. And later on in chapter six of Micah, the courtroom imagery is even more direct. Let me just read to you chapter six, verses one and two. Hear what the Lord says, arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you endearing foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel. So God, the judge is indicting his own people. He is contending with Israel. And let's not fool ourselves into thinking that he won't contend with the church. So friends, as we study Micah chapter one this morning, let's fix our attention on three observations from this text. We're going to see first the appearance of a holy judge. Second, the crime of idolatry. And third, the lament for those under God's judgment. So let's begin in verses one to four. And here we see God, the judge enter the courtroom. And Micah is like the bailiff calling for everyone's attention. All rise for the Lord God almighty. Listen to verse two. Hear you peoples, all of you. 
Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Now, notice that the Lord God is serving as a witness against the people of the earth. When Micah's audience heard verse two, they they were probably cheering at that point. Yes. All right. This is going to be like Jonah's prophecy or or like Nahum's. This is going to be another one calling out those big bad Assyrians. That cheering continues, of course, until verse five, when God indicts his own people for their sin. All this, God says, is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. So God is witnessing against the nations, but he does this by showing the nations his willingness to judge his own people. If even his own people are not exempt from the Lord's judgment, then how much more fearful ought the nations to be? Now imagine with me a classroom where a group of students, including the teacher's own son, misbehaves badly and, and broke some cardinal rules. Now I'm sure the other guilty students in that group wouldn't be surprised if the teacher's son was shown some leniency and punished less severely. I don't think that would shock them. They, they, they would just be resentful of that, of, that, uh, of that student and of his privileged status as the teacher's kid. But imagine if the teacher took her son, stood him in front of the class and showed no mercy and justly punished him as he deserved. Do you see what kind of message that would send? It would strike fear in the hearts of everyone else in that group who misbehaved. They would know now that there will be no leniency, no exceptions, no mercy. That is a witness against everyone else who is equally guilty. And not only does it send a message to the guilty, it communicates really a message about the kind of teacher or the kind of judge we're dealing with. The judge in Micah chapter one is a just judge who shows no partiality, no favoritism. Israel will not receive a lighter sentence just because they're the children of God. God is just. He never turns a blind eye to sin or injustice, even if the guilty is his own son. That's the message sent when this judge leaves his chambers and enters into the courtroom. Keep reading with me in verse three for behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth and the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters pouring down a steep place. This my friends is a terrifying scene. Maybe it didn't register for you, but this is supposed to be describing this creation disintegrating before the presence of the Lord mountains melt like wax valleys split open and their entire contents pour away. This is frightening stuff. Imagine the Himalayas or the Alps or the Rockies picture God planting his foot on one of those peaks and immediately it flattening out and just leaving behind his footprint in, in, in the ground, like melted wax. That would be a terrifying image. And that is the same thing being described here. That sense of terror is the intended outcome. 
If these grand fixtures of creation, mountains and valleys, which are so much larger and so much older than us, if even these cannot withstand the appearance of the Lord, then what hope is there for any of us? Very often when we're facing trials, we're going through challenges where we're being mistreated or we're witnessing some injustice in the world that we strongly are opposed to. We wish that God would just appear and right all the wrongs. We, we, we picture him riding into battle on a white horse, scattering our enemies to the four winds. It's a heroic scene. Maybe it's terrifying for our enemies, but it's a glorious picture for us. But what we don't picture is this. We don't picture creation disintegrating before God's presence as he approaches with every step he takes more and more of creation unravels. So what do you think will happen when he gets close to you in the book of Isaiah, a contemporary of Micah, he experienced firsthand something close to it in Isaiah chapter six. We're told that the prophet saw a vision of the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. Sixth winged angels flew above him. We're told that with two wings, they covered their eyes because pure sinless creatures like angels, they could not even gaze directly at the Lord of hosts. He is holy, holy, holy. No person, no power, no presence can compare. We're told that the foundations of the temple threshold shook in this moment. In Isaiah, a prophet who is so accustomed to issuing woes of judgment on other people, he could only manage to mutter, woe is me, for I am ruined. Whereas the old King James puts it, for I am undone. Isaiah is describing for us an experience of personal disintegration. Just like the mountains and the valleys, he's coming apart. He's coming undone. He could not withstand the very presence of the Lord. He was coming undone. He was disintegrating. Now, if there ever was an integrated man. If there was someone whose life was whole and, and, and wholly put together, it would have been Isaiah. I mean, he was considered by his contemporaries to be a man of integrity, a man who was righteous before God. But all it took was one glimpse at the holiness of God. And he was undone compared to others. He was fine by human standards, but The moment he came into the presence of the ultimate standard, he was ruined, undone. Friends, that's really the same reaction expected of us when we read here in Micah chapter one of the Lord God leaving his throne and descending to the earth, to the courtroom where he presides as judge. And those on trial include everyone, including Micah, including Isaiah, including Israel and including the church today. Now I know this terrifying depiction of God as a holy judge. I know it seems contrary to the more common view of God being a God of love and mercy, but friends, I hope you see there is no contradiction. Judgment is not the opposite of love. 
The opposite of love is indifference. That teacher would not be loving her son if she were indifferent towards his behavior and showed him leniency while punishing his peers. She would instead be instilling within him a sense of entitlement. It's actually love that motivates her to judge her son as guilty and to not let him off the hook. And really, if not for judgment, we wouldn't even know what mercy is. Mercy is only grasped and appreciated when you have a clear sense of what you deserve and how terrifying it would be if you get it. So really there's no contradiction. This is the same God, the loving and merciful God that we so love and appreciate is this holy judge who appears in Micah chapter one to establish his justice on earth. That's our first observation. Now, secondly, In verses five to seven, we see the crime of idolatry. That's what this trial is centered on. That's what this whole case is built on a gross violation of the first commandment. Thou shall have no other gods before me. And it's really not just the pagan nations surrounding Israel and Judah that are at fault. No, both kingdoms are equally guilty of idolatry. Listen to verse five. What's the whole reason for this trial? All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Now, if you keep reading in verses six to seven, it focuses specifically on Samaria in the Northern kingdom. And it predicts it's coming destruction by the hands of the Assyrians. All of its carved images, all of its idols will be demolished. Now it's really going to help us to have some background information regarding Israel, the Northern kingdom. You should know that most of its Kings were, were wicked in idolatrous, starting with the very first one, Jeroboam. After successfully leading a rebellion against Solomon's son, Jeroboam, the first king of Israel, realized that Judah would always have an advantage over them because the temple of God was located in Jerusalem. And so that meant any Israelite in his land who sought to be faithful to the Lord would still have to visit Jerusalem and to, in order to observe the various feasts and to worship there. They would still have to go to Judah. And so Jeroboam's solution was to create his own temple system in the north. And instead of just one temple, he had this ingenious idea to create two. And so he made two carved images of golden calves symbolizing strength. And he had all of his worship, all of his citizens uh, worship the Lord at either location in his kingdom, just as long as they didn't go down to Jerusalem. This act of political expediency really became a snare for all the subsequent Kings of Israel, leading all of them into idolatry. And of course their people would follow. Now, after a few generations, um, a wicked King named Omri and the son who reigned after him, Ahab established and built up the city of Samaria, which they made the capital of the Northern kingdom. And Ahab, as you may know from his many encounters with the prophet Elijah, was the one who introduced Baalism to Israel. 
He established high places, these, these pl- places of pagan worship on, on high hills. He established them throughout the kingdom and he dedicated them to the worship of Baal, the Canaanite God of rain and fertility. And so for these offenses and really countless others, the Northern kingdom of Israel was eventually utterly destroyed. The history of its destruction and the theological explanation for it all is recorded for us very clearly in second Kings chapter 17. I mean, friends, it's really the chapter you should read. If you want to have a good understanding of the background of books like Micah in second Kings chapter 17, verse six, it says this in the ninth year of Hosea, that's the last King of Israel, the King of Assyria uh, at this point, point, it was Sargon II, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and then he began to displace the Israelites throughout his empire. Then it says, verse seven, and this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord, their God, and had feared other gods. Continues on in verse 15. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. And they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord, their God. And they made for themselves metal images of two calves and they made an Asherah and they worshiped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. So this friends is telling us why the Lord was so very angry with Israel, why he allowed the Assyrians to eventually destroy and to displace them. Why that kingdom to this day ceases to exist. Now, It's not to say that false worship, that idolatry was their only fault. As we're going to see, as we go into the book of Micah, the North and the South kingdom were both guilty of social injustices of oppressing the weak and the poor among them. The most well-known verse in the book of Micah is the verse about God's heart, where he wants his people to, to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly before him. So, There is a lot in this book that is going to address societal ills and going to talk about our duty as the people of God to be on the side of justice and mercy. And we're going to look forward into getting uh, into those texts. But chapter one, chapter one is establishing for us the baseline reason for this coming judgment. And the point being emphasized is that all of those horizontal sins of injustice stem from the vertical sin of idolatry. False worship is not just a theological mistake. It's not just an intellectual error. Having a mistaken view of God affects more than just where and how and on what day of the week you worship, whether it's in a temple or a mosque or a synagogue or a church, whether it's on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, or any day of the week. No, it's much more than that. How you see God eventually affects how you see yourself and how you're going to treat other people. Did you catch 
that one profound sentence there in second Kings chapter 17, specifically in verse 15. I'll read it again. It said, they went after false idols and became false. They worshiped false things and they themselves became false. We become like what we worship. That's the principle. A similar pronouncement is made of Israel in Jeremiah chapter two, verse five. They went after worthlessness and became worthless. They went after what was false and worthless and they in turn became false and worthless. We become like what we worship. Now just think about how this works. Even in our modern society, we still worship idols. I know we, we try to convince ourselves that, that we're somehow wiser or more sophisticated than the, than the ancients, that we have left all those primitive beliefs behind, but we still worship the same idols. We just don't personify them anymore and give them names. And we're still sacrificing though our health, our bodies, our children, our marriages to satisfy the demands of the same idols. Whether we're talking about money, career, power, beauty, love, you name it. But just think about how all of this false worship is changing you, how you are becoming like your idol and how it's negatively affecting the way you treat others. If you worship money, Let's say money is what you are living for. Well, then you're going to begin to objectivize everything. you'll, You'll start seeing the world and all the people in it in terms of their monetary or their instrumental value. You're only good to me if you're useful to me. That's how we start interacting and treating, uh, treating people. If you worship beauty, you'll eventually become superficial and self-absorbed. Like beauty, your character will only be skin deep. It'll be shallow and empty. And so will your relationships be with other people. If you worship power, let's say the the power or influence that a career might afford you, you'll become obsessed with status and you'll be ruthless in your dealing with other people. You will eventually become a manifestation of raw power. We become like what we worship. That explains the moral degradation of Israel in the days of Micah, because just as their idols were false, they themselves became false. Just as their idols were destined to lay waste, well, Israel likewise is destined to lay waste. The way verses six to seven describe an utter destruction of the 10 tribes of Jacob is really meant to be shocking. Because remember, even though Micah is here referring to the kingdom of Israel, he's actually speaking to those in the kingdom of Judah in the south, warning that they are not exempt from judgment. If God is going to do this to Israel, then what do you think he's going to do to you if you continue in their same idolatry? So friends, the trial has begun. The holy judge has appeared. Idolatry is the crime at hand. It's a vertical offense with horizontal effects. And now the verdict is in for Israel. The question that remains is how will Judah, how will the rest of the people of God respond? Well, this leads to our third observation in verses eight to 16. 
And here we see a lament for those under God's judgment. Micah describes a scene that's reminiscent of an ancient funeral, describing the typical behavior of a mourner being stripped of your outer garment, weeping and wailing aloud. Listen to verses eight and nine. For this, I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. Now her wound is referring there to Israel's idolatry. It's incurable. There's no turning back God's judgment. Like we said, the verdict is in for the Northern kingdom. The problem here is that this festering wound has spread to the South. It's spread to Judah. It's at the gates of Jerusalem. And so with this remaining half of chapter one, Micah is turning his attention directly to his own people in Judah. And he's using now the form of a lament and he's trying to persuade his own people to change course, to repent of their idolatry and to return wholeheartedly to the Lord. Now, In verses 10 to 15, if you look there, Micah just goes through a list of towns in Judah surrounding Jerusalem, and he's lamenting how how each of these towns will eventually be destroyed by another Assyrian campaign aimed at conquering the entire region. And this would actually occur in 701 BC under the Assyrian king known as Sennacherib. And you can actually read about that story, read about his campaign to take over Judah in second Kings chapter 18 to 19. Now here in our text, Micah names 11 towns. He mentions six in verses 10 to 12, ending there with a reference to Jerusalem and her gates again. Then in verses 13 to 15, he names five more towns. Now, if we had more time, we would point out how there's an interesting wordplay applied in each of these verses based on the name of the town. But really just the main point you need to understand is there in verse 16. And there Jerusalem is portrayed as a lamenting mother. Notice how there she is grieving over her children of delight who are going to be exiled when the Assyrians come. Now, by using this form of lament, it goes to show that these predictions of coming judgment are being aired, are being issued without an air of superiority. There's no prideful disdain in these prophecies because that is the tone you're trying to communicate when you use a lament. Laments are not meant to be accusatory. Rather, in a lament, you're trying to identify with the audience, which conveys empathy. Now, we should ask ourselves, why would a prophet use a lament when usually they're going to rely on prophetic warnings? They're issuing woes against people. But a lament can sometimes be more persuasive than a prophetic warning. Because in a lament, you are building bridges of commonality with your audience, with those under judgment. And so it's a more sympathetic posture. But all the while, you're not denying or downplaying the truth of God's holiness or of his coming judgment. But you are trying to connect with your audience to persuade them to repent, to change. 
Just think of other scriptures, um, other examples in the scriptures of a lament. It's kind of like how Moses lamented over the hardness of Israel during their wilderness years. In Exodus chapter 32, Moses so identified with the people that he was willing to be blotted out of God's book. He was willing to be cut off for their sake. Or it's kind of like how in Romans chapter 9, the apostle Paul lamented over the hardness of his own kinsmen towards the gospel. And now he was willing to be cursed for their sake, for their salvation. Or just picture with me, Jesus lamenting over the hardness of Jerusalem. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. But Jesus, friends, Jesus was not just willing to be cut off and cursed for the sake of others. Friends, Jesus actually was. Micah chapter one ends with Jerusalem as a lamenting mother looking on helplessly over her children, these, these smaller towns as they're about to be destroyed. But in the gospel, Jesus laments over Jerusalem herself and as this mother hen, he doesn't just look helplessly on as his people go into exile. No, he actually goes to the cross where he was cut off and cursed, taking on the just judgment of God in our place. You see, when God forgives his people, when he shows us mercy, it never ever comes at the expense of his own justice. The book of Micah, as we've seen, is emphatic that God never turns a blind eye to sin, not even the sins of his own people. He's not going to give his children a pass. He's not going to just let them off the hook. God is and always will be perfectly just. And in his infinite wisdom, he has devised a way to remain that way while being merciful to us. The answer is the gospel of Jesus Christ. When Jesus saves, he doesn't do it by, by whisking us away to escape the day of the Lord, to avoid God's punishment, to avoid judgment. No, Jesus saves by bearing the brunt of God's judgment in our place. The wrath of God against the sins of his people was fully unleashed on Christ and it was extinguished by the cross. Justice was perfectly served upon my savior who lived and died for me because the sinless savior died. My sinful soul is counted free for God. The just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's the good news of the gospel because Jesus took it upon himself. I am not getting justice from God. Instead, I'm getting mercy. And it's only until you experience that mercy, only until you realize how much you're not getting what you truly deserve, which is just judgment. Only then can you lament for those still under God's judgment. When you look upon the lost in the world today, you won't gloat. 
You, you won't get puffed up with pride because how could you gloat over someone who is going to receive justice since you yourself were spared when Christ received justice in your place? The gospel is what enables us to truly lament for the lost. It reminds God's people today. It reminds the church that we are no better than anyone who is still under God's judgment. That being chosen is not a compliment to us. It's a calling for us. As Christians, we are called to show the same mercy that we have been shown. And we are called to imitate Christ, our Lord. If it's true that we become like what we worship, then the worship of Christ ought to transform us more and more into the image of Christ, where we share the heart of Christ to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with him. That idea, my friends, is going to carry us on as we go throughout the books of, of Micah, as, as we seek to be people of justice and mercy. But it all begins here with proper worship. It all begins with putting Christ in the center of our lives, the center of our worship. Otherwise we are going to be shaped into the image of something or someone else. So let's fix our eyes on Christ and let's worship him together. Let's do that now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the book of Micah for introducing us to this text We thank you, Lord, for though we see your just judgment here and it makes us tremble, we also see glimpses and glimmers of your gospel hope, your gospel mercy through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We want to worship him. We want to become more like him. And so we come to you now in prayer, asking for you to do that by your power in our lives for your glory. In Jesus name. Amen.